the Abrahamic traditions are not the only religions to suggest that it was God's hand who separated the people. There are creation stories all across the globe with similar themes. But early in Genesis, we see that we were created in the image and the likeness of God. And the whole world is said to have had a single common speech. And then Yahweh discovers the people building a tower into the heavens so that they can make a name for themselves. And Yahweh says in Genesis chapter 6, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Whether or not humanity once actually had a common language, these stories exist across cultures and explain something that resonates with our common human experience, something that rings psychologically true, something that is. That even though we sing of being brothers and sisters and children of the world, not by blood or by nation, but by bonds of life, we feel like we're a family, but even though we feel we are that family, we also have a feeling that we are divided as a people. We are divided in this country, in this movement, in our cities, even in our churches. We have different experiences, different understandings of how we've come to be who we are, different meanings that we make about what our purpose in life is and how to express it. Because no single person can completely understand what it means to be someone else. We can't occupy their history, their experience, or their place in space and time. But as people of this free faith, we hold diversity as a value, as a sacred reality even. As something that makes humanity better and stronger and even more beautiful. But oftentimes this is not how we handle ourselves even in church. We seek a visible diversity. But difference extends well beyond the visible. Wherever there are people, there is in fact diversity. We have to be keen enough and vulnerable enough, though, to be in relationship deep enough to be able to find it. And the way that we actually broaden our perception to see those nuanced differences in others is by first seeking to understand our own cultural complexity. So I want to remind us this morning that in the Abrahamic faith traditions, when God separates us, the story does not end at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is just one of three stories very closely woven together. The Tower of Babel, Moses and the Commandments, and Pentecost. So first, God separates the people because we are so full of pride. And we learned to remain separated by joining with those who were like us and resisting those who are not. And from those separations came wars and isms, racism and sexism, terrorism, etc. And once again, our pride returns to center stage. 
And we use our rulers, our values, our experience to measure or judge or punish the world. We remain divided, not only globally, but interpersonally as well. With language and culture, though, came writing and education, and our experience of the world began to be recorded, made more permanent instead of more fluid in storytelling. And we began, at least in Western culture's history, to hierarchically judge our experience of the world, placing what could be classified and, catalog and cataloged above those experiences of the heart or of the spirit or of intuition. And that cultural shift advanced us in many ways, but at the same time, it also divided the world into categories that aren't necessary or always helpful, for they dismiss large parts of the human experience. But in Acts 2, something happens. The story takes a turn. Pentecost happened actually on the Jewish festival day of Shabbat. Which was, celebrating, which was celebrated long before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. Shavuot was the day commemorating God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. This was, in fact, the birthday of the synagogue, so to speak, in the old ways. Everyone hearing the story in Acts at the time would actually know this. So on that day, something very strange happened to a group of Jesus followers. Something happened that Unitarians, for the most part, have dismissed. Jefferson likely did not leave this part in, in the Jefferson Bible. <laughs> Pente means 50, and so 50 days after Easter, on Pentecost, God changes her mind. <laughs> on Pentecost, we are told that people from all over, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea, Asia, Egypt, Libya, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, were gathered together, likely trading goods, and even more likely there was probably a meal. Included at the event was a group of Galileans, those who had been following Jesus, and when they were together, the winds began to blow. Now, in biblical language, if the wind starts blowing, it means that you had better wake up. Because something very important is about to happen, and the fire under someone's tush is about to be fanned. <laughs> so the wind begins to blow, and the people see what appear to be tongues of fire descending. And they separate and come to rest on each of Jesus' followers. I like to imagine them coming down directly to each one of their hearts. And those followers of Jesus begin to speak from their hearts on fire. I imagine them sharing about how incredible it is to be awake and alive, sharing their gratitude for their existence and the wonders of the holy. The passers-by on the street are said to have heard only a cacophony of gibberish. But the people in the room, the people in the room heard their own language coming from those Galileans. They heard a message that resonated with their experience. God must have decided in this narrative that even in our differences, with some help, when hearts are touched, humanity could, in fact, actually understand one another for the good. When we lead from our heart and from our vulnerability, 
We will communicate even with people who are vastly different from us. It was considered to be a miracle, and it fulfilled the Christian story, the beginning of the church, the birthday of the church, overlapping, of course, the birthday of the synagogue. People with very different experiences, with very different cultures and different understandings were all under the same roof, declaring the wonders of God, talking about what matters to them in their own language. Everyone present and awake heard and understood. Now, there were some skeptics, mind you. Not everyone was buying into this particular miracle, many of whom I'm assuming ordered food from a fast food drive through and never got what they exactly ordered, so knew how difficult communication could be. Someone, though, in the room, likely a Unitarian, exclaimed, they've had too much wine. They must be drunk. Peter, of course, corrected the skeptics. They were not drunk. It was only nine in the morning. The wine likely wasn't even out yet. So God separates the people in Genesis, and then by miracle of miracles, there's an opportunity to be together in the same room, speaking in our own language about the wonder of God, the mystery of life, our unique experience of being human and being alive, what we'd suffered through, the beauty we'd share, the love we'd known, and we are understood by those in the room. What if our churches could be a container that gracious a meeting place for that kind of dialogue a hearth from which many hearts could be warmed from which we are sparked to know and manifest our gifts into the world what if our meeting places in our meeting places we could speak from a point of difference about the wonders of life and of God about the mystery of this existence and actually be heard even if it sounds so foreign that we sound drunk to someone else you are the keepers of the flame so how can you tend the fire of your own heart so that your ears will hear a fellow traveler seeking understanding when they might sound confusing or dumb or uneducated or poor. No matter what disguise they might be wearing, no matter what language they might speak. Now, before we can do this well, we must know the complexity of our own story and why this work is so important. I am one 32nd Perdido Bay Native American. My family on my father's side were Creek and forced out of Florida and Alabama to come to Oklahoma. Some merged with the Choctaw and others with the Creek, but you wouldn't know that by looking at me. My family considered themselves fortunate to have small features because we intermarried and it became less and less obvious. I actually found two different census documents that show one entry where we are described as native and another entry just a few years after where we are listed as white. My family hid their Native American connections in order to avoid discrimination and death. 
I tell you this because understanding the complexity of white identity is important to be able to hear other people with the same level of complexity. Entire groups of Europeans in our history were whitewashed in order to create class dynamics that benefited certain people over others in order to ensure cheap labor. I tell you this because part of the work that we need to do to hear one another is about racial healing. But part of the work that we also have to do before we're seeking racial healing is understanding our own story in detail. How did you end up being you today with the opinions that you hold, with the identities that you claim? And in addition to knowing your own story, you need to know the American story and the Oklahoma story and the Tulsa story, which isn't pretty, but which make up the ground that you and I were actually planted in. To understand the history of how that story has been told over the past 300 years and not told. And how it impacts who you are today and how you move through the world, the water that you swim in. Now I know that this topic for some feels overworked, especially in the light of Terrence Crutcher and the fact that I think we've had a rally a day for 10 days. It's hard to be at everyone. It's hard to find time to make this important. How many rallies and memorials can we possibly attend in a given week? But there is so much injustice. Why are we focusing on a single man who could have had drugs in his system, you might ask? Why would we focus on an imperfect man? I want to tell you a story that had a significant impact on me in considering what my role and responsibility should be in the work of racial justice. Tim Wise, author and diversity speaker who came to Tulsa four years ago and actually told this story. And once he did, I never looked at my role in this work the same way. He said, shortly after I graduated from college, I made the decision to move into a large house with nine other roommates. Now please note, and let me spare you the experience, this is never a good idea. <laughs> it just sounds like one. But we thought at the time it would be great. It would be really cheap and we could even share grocery expenses and take turns cooking so as to share the responsibility for the whole group. And one night, about two weeks into our little experience in collective living, one of my roommates made a big pot of gumbo because that's what you do when you live in a house with nine people in New Orleans. And when I returned from work that night, my roommate asked if I wanted some. I said no, because I'd already eaten, but I asked him to please save some for me and to put it in the fridge for the next day, as I might take it to work with me. And then I went upstairs to my room and watched TV and went to bed. The next morning, I came down for my coffee before heading out the door, and what do I see? But that pot of gumbo, half full, still sitting on the front burner of the stove. No portion of it had been saved for me, but more to the point, a great quantity of food had gone to waste. I was upset. Having a little time on my hands, I thought to myself, maybe I should clean up the mess. But then I caught myself, and I thought, mm, wait a minute, I didn't make this mess. This isn't my fault, and I'm surely not going to clean it up. And so I took my, self-righteous, my self-righteousness right on out the door and went to work. About 6 o'clock the next evening, I returned home and noticed another roommate cooking that evening's dinner 
on the front right burner of the stove, but on the front left burner, there was still the same pot of gumbo getting nastier and crustier and funkier by the minute. And I asked my roommate number two what he was doing. Why was he cooking around last night's dinner? Why hadn't he cleaned up first? To which he responded, I didn't make that mess. It wasn't my fault, and so I shouldn't have to clean it up. Logic with which I could hardly argue, as indeed I had said the exact same thing the day before. So I grabbed a plate of that night's meal, went to my room, did some work, and went to sleep. 7 a.m. came, and I had forgotten to set my alarm, but I really didn't need one. For I assure you that when gumbo has been sitting on the stove for 36 hours, the smell will extend well beyond the kitchen, will travel up the stairs, down the hall, under your door, and through your keyhole, and assault you in a way I cannot describe. Your nostrils assaulted, and indeed, that is exactly what happened. And so now, I was mad. I bolted down the stairs, glared at the pot of gumbo as if somehow I expected it to return my stare. I saw it sitting there, now even nastier and funkier, and there was not a roommate in sight. And it was at that point that I said to myself, I might not have made this mess. This may not be my fault, but I'm going to clean it up simply because I'm tired of living in the funk. Tim Wise says we ought to be working to clean up and do our part, not because we're to blame for its creation, but because we're responsible for its eradication. Because we're alive, here and now, with the problem. And so now we have some of the why behind the work. And I've been preaching a little differently lately, which includes, and this is also odd, so if you're a visitor, this doesn't probably happen very often, but I'm going to open my Bible, and what I would like to do is explore together a little bit, that was the why behind the work for me. The how, though, for me, the inspiration comes from a very particular story about Mary that's found in all four Gospels, and so I'm going to read them to you. This inspires me. It doesn't have to inspire you. It inspires me. And I think that by listening to how it inspires me, maybe we might discover something together that you can connect to as well. It's the story of the anointing of Jesus before his death. It's a story about Mary. Now, there was when Jesus was back in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, this is Matthew's version, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume. And she poured it onto Jesus' head as he reclined at the table. But when the disciples saw what had happened, they were indignant and angry, saying, Why all this wasted money? For this perfume might have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of the malice of this remark, said to them, Why are you bothering the woman? She has done a good thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, wherever this gospel of salvation is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her for her act of love and devotion. 
searching for a deceitful way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. But they were saying, no, not during the festival. The people might riot. But there were some who were remarking to one another, oh, excuse me, hang on. While he was in Bethany as a guest at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster vial of very costly and precious perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial open and poured the perfume over his head. But there were some who were indignantly remarking to one another, why was this perfume wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii, labor's wages for almost a year. And the money given to the poor. And so they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you bothering her and causing trouble? She's done a good and beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do something good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand before the burial. I assure you and will solemnly say to you, wherever the good news is preached and proclaimed throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In Luke, in Luke, <laughs> this is where you get stuck with the Unitarian. <laughs> in Luke, should be right there. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house in the region of Galilee and reclined at the table. Now there was a woman in the city who was known as a sinner. And when she found out that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began wetting his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet. Now when Simon the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, and that she is a sinner and an outcast devoted to sin. And then he goes into the parable of the debtors in that one. It's important because the story's just getting juicier and juicier, right? We're just adding more things to it as time goes along. And the last one, six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany where Lazarus was. So now we're connecting it to raising Lazarus from the dead. So they gave a supper for him there, and Martha was serving. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, for he had never cared about them, but because he was a thief, and since he had the money box serving as the treasurer for the twelve disciples, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep the rest of it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with me, but you do not always have me. Why is Mary so important to me? Mary is important to me because she is a sinner. I know we don't like that word. She is imperfect. She's imperfect. She knows that she's not done everything right. She hears that... Suspend what you know for a minute and float with me on this metaphor. She hears that the truth has come, a truth beyond the law. And she goes there knowing that she has made many, many mistakes. She's not the perfect person to go present herself 
to this truth. She boldly enters the room. She has the guts to enter the room, even though, as in one of the descriptions we hear, that they've been talking about her. They know what kind of woman she is. She enters into the room and then vulnerably and humbly submits herself to the truth. She takes the alabaster box, maybe it was a flask, we don't know. In one version, she has to break it in order to get the oil out. She breaks the box open and the whole house fills with the scent of perfume. She takes that thing that's most valuable to her and offers it up to the truth and in the process changes the atmosphere. It's beautiful. She offered what was most valuable to her, but she also did the dirty work. One of the stories says that she anointed Jesus' head. Now, I don't know what Jesus' hair was like or his scalp, but I know what his feet were probably like. <laughs> And in some of the Gospels, it was about his feet. And as you know, after walking in dirt and probably feces, she has used her hair to wipe his feet with oil. This work is dirty. The pot of gumbo is disgusting. And so Mary doesn't shy away from that hard work. She boldly enters she humbly submits to the truth. She comes vulnerable. She offers up what is valuable to her. Wherever the gospel is preached, Jesus says, so there too will be this story. I wrote some reflection this morning before coming here on what I think the gospel is. And this is not about conversion, and it's not about saying the right magic hoo-hoo words to be able to get into some afterlife, as you very well know. But the gospel is what I witness to in order to be able to stay grounded and do this work. And so I wanted to read to you what I believe is the nearly too good to be true news of the gospel of Jesus, so that you can see a little bit about what it takes to do this work. You've got to be grounded. The nearly too good to be true news of the gospel of Jesus. There is a persistent, relentless, and uniting love in the world that transcends betrayal and death and conquers evil. That love is in us and around us. We can draw on that love with our soul and mind and strength to love our neighbor, show mercy, and forgive more than we ever thought possible. With this nearly too good to be true news, the story is not over even when we might believe it to be. With this gospel, we can rise up again and again, calling on the power of a God who is found in the unlikeliest of places. With this story as part of our story, we can bring forth our unique gifts crafted in God's image to fulfill our purpose and be the second coming of that love for one another. This is the work I believe we are called to as a people of this free faith. 
to do what you can to use your voice, especially because many of you have been given a voice in a white vessel, to speak up for injustice whenever you can. There's a meeting today at 2 o'clock at the YWCA at 19th and Lewis, and it is about next steps. It's about organizing white people to actually do something about what's going on in the world. I would love for you to be there. I'm really grateful to have been able to come here this morning and be with you. Bless you all. Thank you for all the work you do, which I know you do, because I love me a Unitarian Universalist. Amen. Thank you.